You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 94 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm I'm all right. I'm good. I'm sitting in my silent house with a long and involved list of things that need to be done and I'm I've actually got time to do them, so I'm all good. How Why are you? Why is your house silent? Why is it silent? Yes. Why are you sitting in a silent house? Because the children are not here. Oh. The children are at school. And Exciting. therefore the house is silent. Very Wonderful. I like it really quiet when I write. I don't have music on or I just have total and utter silence. Okay, fair enough. Mm. And I can hear the birds. It's very nice. Very pretty. Hmm. Uh, my house is, yeah, it's actually relatively silent at the moment. Um, the dogs have gone to the office. <laughs> um, they've been taken there by their dad. <laughs> <laughs> so See ya. it's yep. kind of similar, I suppose. Very similar. What have you been up to this week? Uh, I've just been working on that manuscript that we talked about. Um, yes. So I've put, I think I've about another 10,000 words on that in the last week, which is good. And I. 10,000 uh, words. Yeah. Well done. Well, that's, I mean, you know, this is, you know, we talk about, you know, making time and we talk about trying to get words every day and stuff. That's how they add up. That's the joy of it. It's like yeah. I remember when I was a kid and I opened one of those Commonwealth Bank savings accounts. Remember those? Where <laughs> yes. you had to go and sign up and you got your little money box and whatever. Your little blue passbook. That's it. And like yeah. you had to put your 50 cents in every week or whatever it was. And I just remember being endlessly fascinated because you'd, I'd go along with my 50 cents that mum had given me or whatever and, and I'd, you know, hand it in. And then every six months or so you'd do a bit of a recap and you'd suddenly find that you had, you know, like $10 or something. Yes. And it was so exciting, like watching it grow and stuff. And I think writing words is similar. If you make those regular deposits, then you, you end up with a nice healthy balance. Nice. Do you represent it visually anywhere, like, you know, colour in a tree or something in which it grows? No, I, no, I don't. Tree. If I, you know, do you know what I mean? That would just be one more thing to put on my to-do list would be yes. colour tree. So, no, I don't do that. I just I just like to watch that little – I mean, I, I know Natasha Lester is always trying to encourage me to, to use Scrivener for that reason because, you know, you oh, get the yes. bar and you get the thing and she's like, oh, you'd love it, you'd love it. Um, and I and I do need to do her two hours of screw in a power course so that I have some idea what I'm doing. But um, I just watch the balance grow on the bottom of the Word document at the moment and I open it up every day and go, yoo-hoo. You're old school. So Which old reminds school. me, I should, I'm going to start with Scrivener again because I'm about to start another long writing project and Scrivener is an ideal way to do that. I find that with Word documents, it just gets a little bit clunky. I use Word documents for short things, um, but when it comes to a long writing project, I'm definitely going to re, you know, restart Scrivener again. Mm. Um, well, that sounds like you have been busy. I have been. Well, you know, I'm just, you know, getting on with it. I wrote a website last week. That was fun. I haven't wow. done it. Sort of, yeah, well, it was a job that I'd had for a while and I haven't 
you know, I, I'd sort of hadn't had time to do it and so it's hanging over my head and I had that feeling of, oh, I've got to get this done. So I did that on Friday and it was it was good because I think, you know, we were talking about multiple projects last week and yes. I think one of the things that we probably failed to really, I'm not sure if we really got across the true joy of the multiple project, but one <laughs> of the true joys of the multiple project is that you can still be working on things, but you get actually giving sort of like, so by working on a website, I was giving that fiction part of my brain a nice little rest. So when I came back to the, so I was still writing, still, you know, doing the thing. But when I came back to it on the Saturday, I felt like I'd had a break and it was, I gave me a a new perspective. So I think that that's something to think about if you, you know, like if you're worried about doing multiple projects, it can actually be really beneficial. Yeah, great. Anyway. So One of the other things that we spoke about last week was your new course, which is how to build your author platform. And that's launching just in a couple of weeks. So um, if people are interested, by the way, in that course, go to writerscenter.com.au slash platform and register your interest because then you'll be sent a very special pre-launch only offer. Um, But speaking of author platform, that's something that's gotten me a bit cranky this week, Al. Oh, not again, Val. <laughs> You've had you have so had your cranky pants on quite several times over the last I few know, weeks. No, I know. What are I you know. cranky about? Are you hangry? Look, a li- <laughs> no, I'm not hangry at the moment. I had some gluten free muesli this morning. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of author platform, now I am really passionate about the fact about supporting authors get the profile and the publicity that they need. And I'm really passionate about helping authors, you know, just get the word out there about themselves and helping them with the right tools and all of that to, to make sure that they are, you know, known to the right people. So I was looking up this author's bio on their publisher's website, their own publisher's website, right? And this author has a book out now as in right now okay, you know january yeah. february 2016 has a book out now new book new book and um uh, well he's written a, f- a few other books but um he's he's got a new book out now and on his own publisher's website on his author bio that book is not even mentioned and what yeah, I know. So when you Google the author and you come up to his, you know, you click because it's one of the first things that comes up, the pub, the, the bio on the publisher's website, there's no mention at all of his own book, which is published by that publisher. And I'm just like, you know, it's a major publisher, major publisher. Uh, and, you know, these things can fall through the cracks. People are human. That's okay. So it's so important it's your responsibility, even though you'd like to abdicate or, or that responsibility to your publisher, ultimately it's your life in your hands. You need to be checking your bio. You need to be liaising with your publisher. If you find that it's not up to date, you need mm. to be talking to them. If the name of your brand new book that you want people to buy is not even mentioned on your bio. So even though a lot of people might think that's the publisher's responsibility, yes, it is, but people do fail sometimes and people do, things do fall through the cracks sometimes. Mm. So make sure that it, you, you check things, even if you're not somebody else is meant to be responsible for them because ultimately the buck's going to stop with you. So mm. yes, I mean, so I'm a bit cranky. You like, are cranky at I the publisher. The... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also that the author hasn't bothered to check because yeah. they're just leaving money on the table. They're not. Do- they're really doing themselves a disservice. 
Yeah. No, but it's anyway. very true. Um, it's, it's worth, and it's worth swinging around, like just from my own perspective, it's worth swinging by some of those places, you know, just every, like, like I've had, I had three books come out last year. Um, mm. So I, I, every time one came out, I just did a run through. I had a look at Goodreads. I had a look at the publisher's website, just the Amazon, my, I checked my Amazon page, you know, all mm. of those things just to see that everything was okay, that everything was up to date, updated my own website, updated the Mapmaker Chronicles website, all of those things. And that, you know, the things I could do myself, I did myself and the other things I sent emails about. But having said that, Goodreads still has um, Breath of the Dragon, which is book three on the Mapmaker Chronicles, listed twice and uh, I've been, you know, emailing people about that for quite some time. So sometimes it's just a lag and it's yes. not necessarily the author's fault, Valerie. Yes, just that's pointing true. That out. <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly. Just, but, you, you know, know, for the cranky in you, just sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's all about that. On a more happy note, we yes, want to say thank to you and a big shout out to Sarah Leoff from New Zealand because oh, hi, she Sarah. has, yeah, hi Sarah, thank you for uh, leaving us a podcast rating and review. She's left us a five-star rating on iTunes and she has called it my current favourite podcast and Sarah has said, I've just finished listening to the back catalogue. Al and Val keep me amused and motivated about my writing, which is awesome, but their writer-in-residence feature has introduced me to so many new authors and loads of fantastic books. Win win, go you guys. So, thank you so much, Sarah. You've really made our day. I'm sure I speak on behalf of Alison when I say that. You do, absolutely. I would also just like to say a quick shout out to Nicholas Party because Nicholas, God love him, sent me um, a couple of Facebook messages during the week saying that he listened to our podcast every week and every week he heard you say that it was important, you know, like we, we really appreciate it if people send us reviews and he's been trying. He's been trying to leave us a review, but he's finding oh. it very difficult on mobile devices. So <laughs> he said, I had to laugh, he sent me a message saying, how do I do this? And I had to admit that I could only do it myself through, like I'd only ever been able to manage review anywhere via my via the actual iTunes website. Oh um, so I was of no use to him whatsoever. Um, <laughs> but Nicholas, thank you so much for trying. I really appreciate it. And Nicholas has also asked us to look into um, – uh, Patreon, which is a, a website where authors can actually get sort of patrons, um, ah, yes. which we're going to have a discussion about uh, possibly in the next podcast. So have a listen out for that. All right. Well, thank you to Sarah and Nicholas. And if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, hopefully it, it, it's not too difficult via mobile device. Um, if not, if you have time to do that via your desktop, that would be awesome because it really does help us in the rain in the rankings it does thank you so shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing and vlogging this week let's do that shall we well our first link that i've got for you al is okay. it's it's about blukes. blukes do you know what blukes are no they sound like a typo val <laughs> it's not it's not a typo a bluke is an abbreviation of book look as well, then they'd be blooks, wouldn't they? They wouldn't be blooks, they'd be blooks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is your whole pronunciation thing again. <laughs> I just like saying blooks more. Blooks. <laughs> We're so cool. We are so cool and on trend with our, with our blooks. Anywho, let's talk about blooks, shall we, Val? Blooks. Tell me all about them. See, 
<laughs> I didn't even know that they were they were a thing. But um, there's a they, they are a thing. They are things that look like books but actually oh. aren't. So they could be a lunchbox. <laughs> they could oh. be a a purse, a book purse, but it looks like a a book. They could be a um, cigarette lighter. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, there's just a whole range of things that, and there are some book collectors who just go around the world and they collect all different types of books which I've got to be really careful how I say that now and there's a picture here in this uh, we'll put the link in the show notes and it's this article about books but there's um a picture here of a lunchbox and in and it's it's actually like a, a, a exercise book that you would um you know take in for school in the olden days but actually there's a lunchbox even and it even has like a little um hip flask in there <laughs> That's kind of cool. And the lady who create the woman who created the um, the um, exhibition that this particular article that we're going to link to is about also has a blog called About Books, discovering mm. the book as object, and a new book called Books: The Art of Books That Aren't. And she has a whole range of posts in here about all sorts of things. Like my boys have got these very cool books because they're really? like they're kind of like they're safes, you know, and you put them on your you put oh. them on your bookshelf and you hide your treasures in them. Oh. I think that Mr. Nines is full of his rarest Pokemon cards because, you know, <laughs> you've got to put your treasures in them, keep them safe. I have no idea what Mr. 12 has in his and I don't want to look. But, um, yeah, they're quite popular at the moment. There's a, there's a fair bit of that going on. There's The book is, the book is back. There you yeah, go. it's a thing. It's a thing Goodness now that we me. know how to pronounce it, right? <laughs> okay. okay. So we'll move on. on from books to um, uh, an article I was reading. It's this. It's about a book uh, that seems to be getting a lot of attention at the moment and it's by Shumpa Lahiri. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the book, um, but she's, she's written it in so, – so she's – Originally from her parents are Bengali immigrants who moved to the United States. So she okay. grew up in America, but, you know, her mother tongue is Bengali, but she's always been interested in Italy. So she went to Italy to immerse herself and then decided to pen her novel 100% in Italian. Like oh, confusing. Really? Yeah, fully in Italian. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, a. Yeah. And why has she never, done that? And it's called In Other Words. Okay. Um, it, and it's been translated subsequently into English. <laughs> but she wow. speaks English. Hmm. And yes. why did she write it in Italian? She. Um, she loved the language. I mean, she decided to learn the language. Like she she bought a Facebook one day called Teach Yourself Italian or something like that. And she got into it, but she, she and this is while she was in America. And then she found that she just wasn't really uh, becoming particularly proficient or fluent, even though she would have Italian teachers. Um, anytime she would perhaps go to an Italian restaurant or go to Italy or whatever, it would still be very basic. And it just wasn't, she just wasn't becoming fluent or really good in Italian. 
even when she went to Italy to live, she oh. still wasn't confident. She still wasn't, you know, until she started making some friends in Italian who, to help her, would only speak to her in Italian. Mm. And slowly, slowly she started to immerse herself and started thinking in Italian. So one day when she opened her notebook to start writing her next thing, she found herself actually writing really her journal in Italian, even if it, some of it wasn't 100% accurate. She realized that's when she started kind of thinking and writing in Italian. So she has had a love affair with the country and with the language, and um, she decided to write her book in Italian. And it's really all about that sense of not only a sense of place and a sense of identity, but a sense of how language can shape the way you think and how language a different language can shape you as a person. And sometimes when you think and write in a different language, you are doing so as a different person in a sense to yeah, your other person. It's a really interesting concept, isn't it? A very I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it. It's really interesting. Um, I would like to I wouldn't know how to well enough to be able to do it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I mean, I it's just I'm so. English. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we have enough problems with English, let alone writing. I did. I did twelve language. months of Italian at university. I did, did you um, Italian one uh, Italian one hundred and one basically, and so it was the half the so it was basically a half course was language and half of it was literature, and mm. so you would um, so we would go and we would learn our you know learn our language. And and then we'd sort of go and we'd study texts, Italian texts, but we were studying them in English, obviously. We, do, we were studying translations of, of Italian texts because our Italian was appalling. Mm-hmm. And um, so I ended up doing really well. I actually got, I think, a distinction in Italian and wow. I'm sure it was – and it wasn't – I, I mean, honestly, my language was appalling. So it wasn't the language component. It was simply that I was essentially doing English essays <laughs> on Italian <laughs> texts. <laughs> Wow. So it was quite funny. And no, I cannot speak a word. Obviously. Why did you decide to, A, why did you decide to take it in the first place? And B, why did you decide not to continue after one year? Okay. So I decided to take it because I was a part-time, I was a night student. I was doing it. So I'd started my cadetship in magazines. Um, and um, so it, it kind of comes back to this whole thing. So when I finished high school, um, I got into university and I, Remember, I remember perfectly well the day that I went to my dad and said to him, Dad, I think if I go to uni, I will flunk out in six months' time. I don't think it's a good idea. I was 17. Right. And he just looked at me like, okay, so what are you going to do instead? And I said, I think I'll go. And this is, remember, I was, t- remember I was going to be an actress? So <laughs> this was when I was going to be an actor. And I said, I think I'll go do a business course because then I can support myself typing while I'm being an actor rather than having to be a waitress, which I'm really bad at. Right. So he thought that he thought that was a cutting plan. Um, mm-hmm. So I went and did that. And then I got it after I'd sort of done that, I got a cadetship um, as in magazines. And then I'd been doing that for a couple of years and I thought, I, I just decided I'd go to uni and do arts. So that's what oh. I did. So I was going at night. So I was working full da- full time yeah. and I was going to sort of fronting up to Sydney Uni at 6 o'clock on a, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Um, oh. And I had to do basically whatever courses I could do in that oh. time. So I did, I, I did English literature. I did uh, philosophy 101, which drove me insane. Yeah. And I did Italian because that was what I could actually fit into my section of my life. Oh, okay. (laughs) Subjects, choosing subjects by default, sort of. Well, it's kind of what you had to do at that stage because that was, you know, it was, uni was way more restrictive back in the day than it is now. 
And I've, I've always really liked languages. Like I did uh, French at school and I did German at school. You know, I'd done different things. And I was sort of like, oh, well, you know, I understand how languages go together. How hard can it be? It was that. <laughs> oh, did you learn Allo, c'est Philippe Ledoux? Oui, c'est no, not, okay. <laughs> not well enough to actually be able to converse on any level. But, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're off. We're completely off track, Valerie. Completely off track. Just... I'll, I'll take us even further off track if you like. Okay, there we go. I found this notebook. You know, I'm really obsessed with notebooks and every time I go out, I it, it's very hard for me not to come back with a blank notebook, know, even if it's from the $2 shop. It's a weird uh, question, isn't it? I know, it's weird. I've got drawers full of notebooks. Know, anyway, this is an interesting one. I'm not sure if I will actually buy this one, but I found this on a blog called The Gadgeteer and it's a it's called Wipe Book, as in W-I-P-E, Wipe Book. Mm. So it's a reusable journal. So what it is is not not refillable but reusable as in oh. each page is like a whiteboard. Hmm. You know, so okay. that you when you write on it you can and you just, just rub it, it off. You just rub it off. How cool is that? That's kind of cool. <laughs> so I think that's so some cool. Highly unusual, but basically you use, you know, like whiteboard markers except skinny ones. Like, oh, you know. I'm looking at it though and it actually looks like an actual, like when it's open up, like they've got an example here on the blog yeah. post that you're talking about and it, it looks like an actual proper notebook. Like it's Yeah, that's right. Okay. With, with proper pages except you write on it with a special, you know, Stedler pen and that's like white, whiteboard marker kind of pen but it's a proper pen and you just wipe it off with, you know, um, a cloth. So, okay. yeah, if you're really into sustainability and you, you don't want to keep your books. Oh, I think it's kind of a nice idea because it would stop you from that. This is the th biggest issue, the reason that I have drawers and drawers full of notebooks. And I actually cleaned my desk the other day again and I um, discovered that I've got about 12 just sitting here on my desk, like completely yeah. empty notebooks. Wow. Um, and what I think something like this would stop is that notion that I can't use that notebook. It's too good to use. Oh, uh, you know yeah. Do you have that? Oh, I have many of those notebooks. Oh, so do I. So yeah. at least you wouldn't have that issue. But it's quite expensive. Like it's forty four ninety nine. I know. It is a little bit But expensive. if you never had to buy another notebook ever mm. again. But then maybe. where will you put your notes? How do you keep your notes? You did have to take but a photo of them. Do you know what it would be? Per well, yeah, I don't know. What would you do? <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. I, I think we, I mean, we, we could debate like, that for a long time. Well, it's so clever, right? But it made me wonder, well, for what purpose would I Is it actually this? too clever? Yeah, it could be too clever. Mm. But anyway, let's move okay. on to a post that I came across uh, that made me start thinking about a few things because um, it's called Stay Focused, Four Ways to Delete Writing Distractions from Your Life. And it's by Meg Dahl. Um, and she has mentioned a few things like shut down the internet, create a do not disturb nook, set a time or word or page count limit, or get up early and stay up late. But I've, and they're, they're all really useful, but it made me think because I've really been trying to experiment with different things in terms of focus for my writing lately. And I've never really used, you know, those internet blockers and stuff like that because I don't really, hmm. I'm just not that into them. But hmm. one of the things that I, two things that I've done lately that really have made a difference. I've only been doing this for the last, I don't know, maybe a month and a half. Um, but one thing is I just shut all my tabs. 
So it's it's you, you think that they don't impact you. You think I'm just not going to look at the tabs, you know, mm. but I do need it there for later. But I found that if I shut them, I do have a higher level of concentration. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I've done, and again, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, just turn off your email and stuff like that. I do have my email running in the background. But what I've done is really cleaned out my notifications. So now I have a separate a folder called notifications. You know how sometimes you get notifications from whether that's from Facebook or your social mm. media or just from blogs you follow or or stuff like that. You don't want to not know them, but you don't need them coming through your your main inbox. So now I have a special folder for notifications and I've set a rule for all notifications to go into that folder. And the I I, I wondered whether it would actually make a difference because A, they're still coming in. <laughs> but it really does. The uh-huh. mental clutter that gets eliminated from your brain by that simple action has really helped me to focus more. So I just thought I would share that. That's excellent sharing, Gallery. How Thank about you? you? Have you? Have oh. you? Uh, well, do you, you know, have I, a problem with this? Or I, I didn't even think I had a problem with it. I just thought I'd try this, and it turned out like it's really improved. Well, I think the best thing I, I think I guess what I do is um, the best thing that I've ever done from that perspective was I give myself permission to do half an hour of faffing about in the morning. I check everything, have a look at everything, line up mm. everything, and then once I've done that, I kind of feel like I've done it, and then I then it's like okay, well now I'm going to do X project before I go back and mm. check anything again, and that's what I do. So I, I've, I think it's partly a practice thing. But I also think that I, I just feel like one of the biggest distractions that people have with their writing is excuses because, and, and I found myself tweeting yesterday. I got, I think I must have had your cranky pants on actually. So, um, because I, um, I'd spoken to like via email and Twitter and various things with several people that day who had been telling me 8,000 reasons why they couldn't write, <laughs> most of which came down to Netflix and, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, really. And I'm so I'm too distracted by this or whatever. And I I just think it comes down to this. Like, you know, if you want to write your novel, um, you you have to actually write it. And we can talk about all the reasons why you can't do it. And we yeah. can talk about how busy your life is. And we can do all of those things. And we can talk about those for months and months and months and years. And you'll never do it. Um, yep. It's that whole thing of like, if you really want to be writing it, you have then why aren't you writing it? You've got to look mm. at where the block is. Do you actually not really want to do it? Like what exactly is holding you back from it? I don't watch Netflix. I don't even have mm. Netflix. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of television because I would rather be writing my project. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I I, it, I always find it quite difficult when I people say to me, oh, you know, I don't know how you do it. And I'm like, well, I don't watch Netflix and I do this and I do that and, mm. and I sit down every day and I do whatever. And the first word that comes out of their mouth is but oh, but I can't do that because I'm blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. All right, that's good. Yep, that's whatever. <laughs> don't ask me. Don't ask me, you know. If you don't want me to tell you what I do, don't ask me. It's everyone's oh. like, oh, it's all right for you because you're ex. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I just actually really want to write the book. I want to find out what happens next and that's what motivates me. So yes. I don't – distractions, you know – I don't have time for them. Well, when people say that to me, their first response isn't but. You know what their first response to me is? What? Oh, you don't have children, do you? 
Oh, stop it. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> so <laughs> what's, I get butt. Because, of course, there's nothing else in my life. Because no, there's, no, there's nothing, Val, because clearly you're just sitting around at home just, you know, staring into space, waiting for That's inspiration right. to strike. Yes. Anyway, like I, I, I think, you know, like it's, it's important if you're struggling to get, you know, if you're struggling with distractions, you have to stop looking at the distractions and start looking at yourself and start mm. looking at what the blocks are, what's stopping you. And yes. is it because you're actually, are you scared? Are you worried? Do you not feel confident enough? Do you need to do a course? Do you need to talk to someone? What is it that's actually holding you back? And when you find out what that is, you'll find that the distractions fade away. Yeah, you just got to be really honest with yourself. You do. Mm. Mm. Let's move on to our giveaway for this week. Very exciting. It's a signed copy of the fantastic book which has won or been shortlisted for every second or every award in Australia, it seems, Withering by Sea by Judith Russell. And it has been so successful. I see it everywhere and um and it's it's great because judith is one of our wonderful presenters at the australian writers center in melbourne and she teaches the course writing books for children and young adults but also the course writing picture books and uh, you have an opportunity to get her book withering by sea and you can do that by entering uh at writerscenter.com.au slash win i would like to win this one I, I, it's the most beautiful little book. It's a it's a gift of a book to give um, a child it's because it's got the beautiful cover and it's hardback and it's just divine. So, I think you should all enter. Yeah, brilliant. It's an it's a Victorian fantasy adventure for ages nine plus. So yeah, definitely enter writerscenter.com.au slash win. And you have until the eighth, Monday, the 8th of February to uh, enter that competition. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, just still, you can still go to that URL and there'll be another book for you to win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course in writing books for children and young adults will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours each week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personalised feedback on your writing. To find out more, visit writercentercomau slash WBC. All right, now for our writer in residence this week. This is Who do you a- have for us, Valerie? Well, you many people will be familiar with this name, Don Watson, because Don Watson was previously Paul Keating's speechwriter and he wrote the best selling book, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, Paul Keating Prime Minister, which won the Age Book of the Year. But Don Watson is one of these people who is really into the um documenting the spread of management speak you know, and the decline of public language. And that's why he wrote the book Death Sentence, which won a whole host of awards as well, followed by Weasel Words, which which someone gave me as a gift, and that won a whole host of awards as well. So he's really into uh, words. 
So it's not surprising that uh, I'm interested in talking to Don. He he also recently wrote uh, the book The Bush, which um, was um, has won also a host of awards. But his latest his latest book is called Worst Words: A Compendium of Ken. I'm, I'm, I can't speak properly because I'm having got my words You're so right. excited. Exactly. Worst Try words. Again. Yes. Worst words, a compendium of contemporary cant, gibberish and jargon. So let's have a listen to Don Watson. Thanks for joining us today, Don. Thank you. Now, um, for those readers who haven't read your book yet, Worst Words, a Compendium of Contemporary Cant, Gibberish and Jargon, can you tell us what it's about? Oh, well, it's about Cant, Gibberish and Jargon. <laughs> um, um, but, but it's about management language, I suppose. Um, and it's it's influence on political language and, um, and all kinds of trickery. Uh, particularly its influence on the um, the toiling masses in the knowledge economy in mm. those people who work in organisations that use this kind of horrible drivel um, and beyond that you know where there might be some excuse for it in these big organisations you know whence it came I suppose um, but no excuse and much reason to deplore it in uh, schools and universities and even primary schools, even kindergartens, fire brigades, mm-hmm. all sorts of unlikely places. You'll see it turn up, you know, whenever an organisation is trying to explain itself, either mm-hmm. explain away bad behaviour, but just as often to try and explain something which would be relatively simple to an ordinary um, soul with the gift of language, but who now can't say anything without feeling that he or she must abstract it into some kind of nonsense. Why do you think that is? Why do you think in the in you know management speak, people have evolved their language to to be like that? I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of know. I mean, I, I suppose to begin with, we have to understand that you know we have gone through a huge revolution in the way that organisations work, and some of them work a lot better than they used to. Mm-hmm. We've gone through a technological revolution of a kind that, you know, in a way, makes the industrial revolution look a rather simple you know, affair. Um, and it's happened very quickly. So English has been, from the technology itself, English has been inundated with new words to describe new... Um, new things that we use to communicate, I suppose, and that our language has grown up with, with smartphones and computers and the internet and everything else. So we use the word platform now, whereas once we might have thought of a railway platform or some raised structure, the word platform now means what it means in technology. And mm. it gets looser and looser, so we can't say anything without saying platform. You know, <laughs> you know Freddie, age six, you know, has a... a, a an enhanced learning platform or something of that nature. Yes. Um, and uh, the management speak, I, I think, has two broad choices. One is that there are new words to describe the new forms of organisation. Mm-hmm. The other is that it's a, it's a power. It's a, language is usually about power and creating a, a sort of 
in language, a sort of mm. a set of mantras that uh, only you speak, or you must speak to show that you've that you understand the world around you, has um, has accelerated the process and made it spread. So mm. now to sound like you've learned what you need to learn to be a, a satisfactory functionary, <laughs> um, you must speak the speak. It's part of, you know, it's one of the signs or the most prominent sign of your buy-in. Mm. It's one of their terms. <laughs> What's, what are some other of the newer terms that you feel have emerged over the last couple of years? If you take a word like impact, mm-hmm. you know, we used to use the word impact to describe a few things from, say, an asteroid strike or a blow on the head with a hammer or a... Um, we might also talk about an impacted tooth or something like that, but now we use the word impact to describe anything that comes in contact with something else. Mm. So we are impacted by everything. Yes. Now we're impacted by dandruff. We're impacted by... <laughs> um, we're impacted by events. Once, and of course, once we would have said it rained, but now we're impacted by rain events. <laughs> um, and that is, rain events have impacts and wide-ranging impacts. They also have outcomes. There's another word. Oh, yes. we, once had, we once had a whole lot of words to describe different kinds of result or consequence. Mm. And when we thought about a result or a consequence, we would choose instinctively the word which seemed the most appropriate to describe the result or consequence. But now we simply say outcome. Yes. And so now that spreads. And and this is a very tricky word, a word like outcome. I mean, because it's so so general and so anodyne and amorphous, we're not any longer obliged again to say what the specific outcome is. I mean, just as we might say that a man, you know, crossing the street was impacted by a car now. Mm-hmm. We might also say that the what, that the outcome was that he was dead. Yes. Um, in which case, it was a negative patient outcome. Yes. Um, you know, or, or something of that kind. So we become less and less specific, precise, nuanced, and all those sorts of things which language once enabled us to do. Mm. It gets worse because when you decide that you will have an outcomes-based education, <laughs> yes. The first the first folly that you commit is to suggest that all of those who you know, are over 35 and had non-outcomes-based education <laughs> are morons, obviously. Uh, it was an inferior kind of education in which people didn't care about outcomes. Yes. This is absolutely ludicrous, of course. Yes. But what's more sinister is that you look, the harder you look at this outcomes-based education, the more you see that the outcomes have begun to describe, or long ago began to describe, um, the outcomes for those who are designing the education, not for those who are receiving the education. Yes. So in extreme examples like community groups in, in remote communities, you know, in, in remote Arnhem Land or somewhere like that, you will find that there, there will be satisfactory outcomes for students who, when you speak to them and sit down with them in concrete ways, you find that after 10 years of an outcomes-based education can't read or write. Mm. And that, in fact, outcomes-based education describes something which is entirely satisfactory to bureaucrats, educators, and even teachers, um, but is 
a calamity for yes. those the education's intended for. Now, that is where it gets really sinister. And I think it's where, for instance, I think that if you look, look hard at the Australian education system, you would find that we've been kidding ourselves for a long while. And it's really, it's with language that we kid ourselves. Yes. And it does start with the educator because I often hear people talk about, well, we need to determine the pedagogical outcomes of this course or whatever. And a similar word to outcomes is deliverables, of course. Yes. <laughs> That's it's a doozy. Well, it's, it's, it's because we think that, the, that, that nothing exists if it's not measurable. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's in the same way that, that in total quality management, or lean management, you know. I mean, a few Harvard uh, types went over and watched the way Parada worked and decided that there was millions to be made out of imitating this with a few tweaks here and there mm. in various books about how Toyota you know, ended up with making more reliable cars than anybody else. Toyota did it by common sense. Mm -hmm. the, the, what's been done since has been done by all sorts of you know, PowerPoint rubbish, really, <laughs> by a whole lot of inventions. But at every point, you know, what you're trying to, what Toyota were doing was, was to, to measure people's um, performance. Mm. Hence KPIs and all these sorts of things, which which developed beyond Toyota. So, and, and, and it's reached the point now where we think the only way you can run an organisation of any kind is to do things which are measurable. Mm. So deliverables uh, 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 is, is, is this abstraction of something that people do, and outcomes and outputs and inputs and all these things are the same. Um, mm. KPIs or all this nonsense. No, it just simply doesn't work in most human situations. I mean, it may work for KPMG or Ernst and Young or something like that. I'm not sure that it does, mm -hmm. but it, but it, it certainly whatever works for them is not likely to work for a primary school mm. um, or a fire brigade, where you will hear some of the most unbelievable <laughs> management nonsense spoken <laughs> by people whose job it is to put out fires. <laughs> So, your previous book is, you, you've also written Weasel Words. Now, when and why did you become so interested in the world of management speak? When I was a speechwriter. Mm -hmm. um, I was writing satire in the 80s when I was conscripted to write for John Kane. Mm -hmm. I'd been writing for Max Gillies up till then. And for a while I went on writing for both. And then I started writing speeches for Paul Keating, and, I, and I, I, was, I began getting briefs. Right from the start, I was getting briefs from departments, both first the Victorian Public Service and then the Commonwealth, that I simply didn't understand, or worse, I couldn't stay awake for more than a page of. <laughs> you know, and I thought, at first I thought, I'm just not up to the job. These people are much too clever for me. And then I began asking them what they meant and they would say things like, well, we don't know, it's just what we always say, you know. It was all written in this in this weird, abstract, dead language mm. full of full of messages. The favourite one, one of the favourite ones in those days was access and equity. That had to be mentioned about every page and a half. Right. And so it meant that the language never actually got close to touching 
the nerve ends of ordinary folk. It never did what language is meant to do, that is to reveal the speaker to the people who are listening. Mm. You know, speak that I may see thee. Um, you, know, you, you know a person by his or her language, by the words they use. Now, this was all designed to sound sort of vaguely scientific and, and important, but in fact it turned people off completely mm. and made politics even more remote from the populace than it had been, um, you know, than it always is in a way. So I found that my speechwriting career, which lasted about eight years, um, was largely a job of rewriting departmental briefs mm. or, or the, the standard you know, mantras of, of political speak into words that might touch people mm. in a way or inform them or make them laugh. This language removes all the possibilities of language, all the lyric, comic, ironic, descriptive, metaphorical possibilities of language. Mm. You don't want any of that because it's language that's really been turned into the equivalent of an assembly line. So, you know, and the, and the standard words and phrases are the sort of buckets of the assembly line into which many, many things can go. You don't want people on an assembly line to be thinking about other things to be taken by the language they're using, using into metaphorical fields. Mm. You know, I wandered lonely as a cloud. What? What's a cloud got to do with it? Nothing. <laughs> you know, we don't want them talking like that. Um, this is a, you know, this is a loneliness event. Keep it to that. Um, that's the sort of thing, I suppose, that the books have been inspired by. I mean, I want to want to sort of retrieve the language and encourage people, especially those who who have public power, yes. to have a care for the language and to um, take their duties to it seriously. Mm. So the book has been arranged in alphabetical order, sort of like a dictionary where you have all the different terms of management speak, some of which are hilarious and some of which are just woeful mm. <laughs> words. That you don't want to read it end to end. But a lot of research has gone into this book, but not just the, by the fact that there's so, so much in there. You've referenced everything. You've actually got um, an indication of where you have read this particular you know, term whether that it has been said by a football commentator or it was by a prime minister or whether it's on a website or whatever. How did this process work on a practical level of compiling all of this? Do you, did you just over a period of years kind of spot things and file them away? How did that actually work and how did you then determine which ones made it into the book? Well, um I really just put everything into the book. I went through it with the publishers and I probably would have taken more out than they were inclined to. But um, it, it began as if it was just the fourth book I've written on the subject. Mm. The first one was a book called Death Sentence, which I wrote after I'd written a big book on Keating and it was, a, it was just a little, it was done on a whim and um, it sold its socks off. It yes. Incredibly, incredibly well and, and I got, I got so many letters after that book <laughs> that I um, and it sold in the US and the UK and um, 
but I could send a letter that I actually took someone on to um, help me um, and and to set up a website and she's been running that website ever since and hundreds of words have been sent in to her by people from their workplaces. Mm-hmm. I always imagine them sort of hiding behind filing cabinets and texting me. Somebody just said this. this <laughs> you know. um, and there really were people who were like moles in the public service and other places sending me all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so a lot of the words in this and in, well, in Weasel Words before that and, and another book called Bendable Learnings came, you know, straight out of the out of the workplace. Um, others just came out, you know, you know, we picked them up out of newspapers over the years and, and um, I mean, Helen has sort of kept an eye out for 10 or 12 years and so have I and it's, um, it's very easy in a way to put them all together. It's, it's grueling to sort of work your way through them and put them into a book because it's just, really unnatural it's like eating gravel you know it's not something that you want to do it's like it's like what sorry it's like eating gravel you know it doesn't come naturally (laughs) so tell me about that process even though it was unnatural how did you go about it how did you decide to uh approach it so that you didn't feel like you were eating gravel (laughs) well the only way i mean it's only the only thing that keeps going is the comic possibility yes Anything that makes it survivable is is to laugh at it. Um, I don't think laughing at it is the only way to, you know, hold it in check. I, I think we have to do more serious things than that, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably impossible because I think it's it's systemic. And I also think now, despite my best efforts, I think a generation has grown up now that knows no other way to speak, <laughs> and knows uh, really and knows no, you know, they've been educated in it. And um, they work in it. It's the language of of everyday life, more yes. and more. Um, I used to make a joke about how you know it would soon be at the dinner table, and the breakfast table, and someone would be saying, you know, it would enhance our, you know, lifestyle going forward. Muriel, if you would more proactively oversight the porridge or something like that. And I and I think, and I think now that's how probably people are saying. Things, you know? <laughs> I think people might be, you know, sort of doing all sorts of things in this language. They might be making love in this language for all we know. Yes. But, and, I, you know, I think it's in the workplace and I think it's it's reported. They use it without comment in newspapers and um, it's, it's just language is imitative, so there's nothing much you can do to stop it. And I think it's probably, you know, it's it's... Politicians take to it with great relish because yes. it, it's a it's always a way of sounding grave when you've got nothing in your head. Yes, um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, or you grave. just need to, you know, you, you know, you just need to fill up some space with yes. With um, nonsense. You can open any newspaper any day of the week, and you'll find it there in someone trying to say something without saying something. Mm. But you also find, more tragically, people unable to say what they need to say because these are the only words they have. 
Yes. Do you see, have, you've done this for a while now, so have you seen some clear trends in the way our language has evolved in things that, in, in certain words that have come and gone perhaps or anything like that? It's probably a few words that have gone. It's, it, the funny thing is, you know, that most of the words come out of, if you want to find, to narrow it down to a couple of principal sources, you'd probably say the Harvard Business School and Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many others, and, um, and and it mutates and evolves. Um, yes. But just when Harvard, you know, will be giving up a word, or Forbes, you know, Business Magazine, or something like that, they will write about oh, these words. Well, this practice in business no longer turns out to be useful, like um, performance indicators, mm-hmm. performance reviews. Then you know. Where, you know, while the Harvard Business School is saying, you know, these things turn out to be no good, or PowerPoint is a waste of time, you know, that, that it's, that's the thing. It's not everybody gets it at once. Um, and um, so, you know, we, we tend to be picking up language which may be dying at the source, but is coming alive at um, some place where it's really, really a silly place for it to be. Mm. But I think what's most disturbing is that at the same time as this has happened, you know, our education system has become more and more vocational and done away and, and more and more obsessed with outcomes, if you like, and yes. measuring students and all this. And while they will say, well, that has nothing to do with the content of courses, well, in fact, it does, because we are doing away with those disciplines which were the repositories of language that protected the language, where language mattered um, in literature and history. and Even grammar, we, we gave up teaching grammar properly in the 80s. Um, that is still, it's inconceivable that that even occurred, isn't it? I think it's, it's, it's staggering. <laughs> and I, and I, it really is. I mean, you, you don't want to learn the architecture of your own language. Yes. I mean, I only got home to a country high school and we got a smattering. I don't think we got anything like enough. We didn't, you know, we didn't do Latin or Greek or anything like that. But so I'll always, you know, struggle with um, those educated in the British public school system, for instance, something like that. Mm. But it, I, I, I think the habits of reading and, um, and, and having a respect for the language, a care for the language have, you know, have died out. Yes. And, and as a consequence, we um, we're easily um, seduced by this other stuff. Mm. Just the same, you know. I go and speak to a lot of organisations. Um, usually, you know, there are, because there's a maverick here and there, they'll get me along, and everyone turns up, and <laughs> and people, you read this stuff back to them, and they laugh, and, and <laughs> some people get really quite hysterical. Mm-hmm. It touches them deeply, mm. um, and they hate it. And I get teachers turning up to functions saying, you know, "I left the service because I couldn't stand this anymore. I'm no longer able to write my own school reports and say what I think about students. I'm not, I have to do it all according to sort of measurable indicators." Yes, and they find it just utterly soul destroying. Um, so there's there is enormous. Um, you know, deep loathing for it out there. Yes. A woman told me the other day at a, at a function when I was promoting this book that she works in the Commonwealth Public Service, which she said her department outsources all correspondence 
literally had to apply an English group. <laughs> because because no one in the department is able to write. I mean, at least they recognise this. Yes. No one in the department is able to write letters to Australian citizens in a language which the Australian citizens can respond to. Well, at least they've reached that point that they say, well, we're not up to it. But it might also be because I think, well, that's, we want people to speak in our language and so we'll let stuff that needs to be said in another language to someone who uses that language. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, it is quite bizarre. Do you think it's, it sounds like you think it's unsalvageable. Do you, would you, what do you think needs to be done to salvage it or do you think we are forever relegated to be talking about the impact of our porridge on the our, our learning outcomes for the day or something? I think it is probably unsalvageable because I think it's systemic. I mean, every, ever since you know, modern English evolved, the people have been worried about its direction. Samuel Johnson worried about it and wrote a dictionary. So did Noah Webster to try and you know keep it all keep words meaning what they're meant to mean and so on. And mm. um, there've always been grammarians, at poor, hapless, ungrammatical heels. Mm. Um, and I don't have much sympathy for them. I mean, I'm, I'm because this language is beyond the reach of grammar. The plain English will not fix it. Mm. Um, that's, this is what makes it different to any other. I mean, see, I love the vernacular. I'm, I'm more for Mark Twain than I am for Henry James. I mean, I, I think, and I think vernacular Australian is a marvellous, colourful thing, and I think it's what keeps the wonders of English alive. Mm. Um, the formal English is beautiful, but if you haven't got it, well, then the vernacular will do. It's where all the colour is. But this language annihilates the vernacular mm. as well as the formal. So while English grows at the margins as a result of English being the language of business and technology and the rest, it's been really reamed out at the centre. It's, it's thoroughly depleted at the middle. And we just Because we now use these portmanteau words, <laughs> we use one word for, whereas once we might have used 20. And what's more, that, that instant of thought about which of the 20 words we would utter, mm. we no longer go through that. Our minds no longer think, what is the right word here? We just yes. use outcome or output yes. or whatever. You know, you know, these are, these are, you know that's why people like Edward Tuff, the, the, the um, Yale business professor, say that PowerPoint and business language in general is actually reducing our cognitive abilities. Mm. He said that 15 years ago, and I think it's true. Let me take you back to when you were being a speechwriter for Paul Keating. What about that role, what about the act of speechwriting, I mean, did you enjoy the most? Um, I don't know whether I really enjoyed them. It was, it was satisfying if, it was always satisfying to write a speech that, um, that Paul liked, mm. um, and it was satisfying to write a speech that he adopted. It was um, satisfying to write one that was well received. Um, the actual writing, writing's always hard. That's another reason why this stuff um, happens. Is so is so you know pervasive because mm. it's hard to say what you mean. Mm. Great writers are the ones who most often tell you how hard it is to say precisely what you mean. Yes. Um, 
There's a wonderful quote from George Eliot when she talks about exactly that, yeah. how easy it is to slip into something you don't quite mean. Yeah. Um, now, speech writing demands that you do your best to say what you mean all the time um, and that you you push the limits of language to to include other minds, um, you know, to use all the possibilities of language and not slip into the, the, the standard phrases, the three-word slogans, the, the dog whistles and all the rest. Mm. You know, that, so the most enjoyable thing was to actually you know, slow through the night and come up with something that you felt didn't exist before you started. Mm. It's the same if you write a postcard. If you write a good, you always have a choice between writing a good one and a bad one. You can always write, dear mum, or dear valued mother, or something like that. You know, <laughs> coming out of a department, <laughs> you know, dear valued mum. Um, you know, or you can say, I'm having a you know a lovely time here. Wish you a goodbye. Yeah. Or you can actually try and say something that will make a laugh, or make a you know a heart flutter, or yes. something happen. You know, faint or something like that. You always have this choice whether you'll write well as well as you can, or you'll just you'll just squib it, whether you'll slum it. And I think anyone who's involved in writing anything uh, has a um, a duty not to slum it. You know, mm. to have a care for the sacred quality of the language, as Barry Lopez once said. The we- thing is, though, or I think is that is that in 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 this knowledge economy in which we purportedly live which I think actually is a realm of ignorance. But <laughs> in, the, in the knowledge economy, millions of people are required to write who would never normally have written for a vocation. Mm. And writing is hard. Mm. So that I think that's why this language has taken such a grip, because all management wants to do is to have people move the message along the line a bit, to move a bit of knowledge from here to there. Yeah. Since you have knowledge management, you know, which is a kind of a, a great festering pit of this stuff. <laughs> um, that's really why I, I don't hold out much hope for the survival of, of living English, <laughs> of, of, <laughs> you know, of, of anything like the English that we grew up with. Um, because I think, I, I don't think business and commerce and organisations in general could stand it. Yes. So what's next for you? What are you working on? Or what do you think you'll be working on next? I'm already working on a couple of things. Um, I'm working on a book about um, a very old friend of mine who's an anthropologist and a biologist and a Vietnam veteran, mm-hmm. um, um, a sufferer from PTSD, um, who I met when he first came back from Vietnam and who has been with a uh, an Aboriginal outstation for the best part of forty five years, oh. um, working with a group there who had he discovered wrote his PhD about them, and they had just after thousands of years decided to settle into a sedentary existence. So it's a hmm. it's right on the on the margins of that particular frontier. Um, and so it's a book about the um, the anthropology of these people and of this man's 
consuming passion, I suppose, and how much he's sacrificed and mm. how much it was a sort of, for him and other Vietnam vets, he took their sort of Winnicotti and therapeutic community, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a sort of big book. Um, I had not too big in pounds, but... Uh, <laughs> Do you think... I wanted to write for a long while, and it's a sort of challenging prospect. After you do that, uh, after a, and after a couple of years, when you have more secret notes sent to you from various, you know, corners of the public service, do you think you'll come out with, you know, wacky words or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. I think four is enough. I, I can't yeah. believe I went back to the well one, even even this time. But it was the publisher's idea, not mine, and um, and. Um, that's been terribly well received. It always seems to. Yes. Well, I have no that doubt. Doesn't make any difference, but I keep doing it. <laughs> I have no doubt it's going to be very, very popular, as the others have been as well. Um, so, on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Don. Really appreciate you having a chat with us. My pleasure, Valerie. Thanks for having me on. Now, Don's books have been so popular and they have it's just sold really, really well because there's obviously a whole lot of people out there who find the death of the English language just as amusing or who are equally, you know, passionate about it as, as he is. And that's where he gets a lot of emails and a lot of people just sending him lots of examples of um, – of the sins that they see occurring in the English language. It's kind of a fun little hobby, huh? Sounds like you're kind of <laughs> That could have a conference, Val. You could go do a keynote. <laughs> the, book is, the book is great, you know. I, I, I'm giggling out loud um, <laughs> <laughs> at how dumb sometimes, you know, people can be. Oh, Not yes. dumb, but the, the, way that it, the, the way languages evolve sometimes and it's quite amusing. <sighs> but... Let us move on to our app pick for the week. I love this app. (laughs) Oh, what a surprise. A new app that Valerie loves. What have you got for us? So it's called Blinkist, Mm -hmm. as in blink and then IST. Mm -hmm. And I only discovered it uh, about a week or so ago. And basically it's really good if you like business books. Now, I do enjoy reading business books from time to time, but there are so many business books out there that I simply don't have the time to read them, particularly because I don't just want to be reading business books. I want to be reading, you know, fiction as well. Mm. Um, But this is for people who want to read business books. And what it is, it's book summaries. And it's um, because there are some business books which I do believe you need to read word for word because they're written so well that you want to savour every word. Mm -hmm. And anything by Michael Lewis or Walter Isaacson certainly fit that bill. But there there are some business books that are got really good concepts and ideas, you know, in them, but they could have probably been expressed in a magazine article or a long magazine article and didn't need a whole book. Mm. And this app is great for those books because you still want to absorb the fantastic ideas, but not necessarily, you know, the entire book because sometimes they're not written in the best way. It's Mm. just a good expression of ideas. So what you can do 
with this app is you get three days free so that you can see you know what it's like and it it just it has these summaries which you can either read or you can press the play button for not all of them but most of them and you you hear the audio of them so I can be sitting in the car and I can just press press play and get this get a book summary by the time I've reached my next destination wow yeah it's great so after three days you can choose a couple of different plans depending on you know, what you want, because the pro plan, you can also highlight and write notes and that can be sent to your Evernote. And mm-hmm. if you love a book a lot, you can then choose to buy it through, you, you know, on Amazon or wherever uh, as well. And and you can read these summaries also on your Kindle. So um, yeah, if you want a easy way to consume uh, business books, then Blinkist. Hmm, there sounds you go. good. Yes. But let's move on now to um, we usually have our working writers tip this uh, at this point in the episode. We do, but uh, and it's usually a question. Mm. But um, somebody didn't necessarily ask this question, but it's something that I am noticing, and I suspect from conversations we've had in the past, Al, that you've been noticing it as well. And it kind of follows on from this idea of building your author platform, mm. and the idea that it's you know your destiny is in your own hands. You are the one who can decide and engineer it so that you uh, get the most out of your publicity or not. Mm. Now, I am really surprised and because you're a journalist, I'm a journalist. We interview people all the time, right? We do. We do. Yes. And when you interview people, you especially if you need to record the interview or you just want to hear them, you want them to be in a distraction-free environment where they can pay you attention and if you're recording it for a podcast, you want it to be good quality audio. Mm. It is shocking the number of authors who uh, don't have don't have decent um, a, a decent situation where they can do an interview. They'll mm. do it while their children are screaming in the background or they'll do it while the baby is next to them. So they have to talk like this during the interview. Mm. <laughs> and Mind some- you, I do remember a podcast that we recorded one night while my children were asleep and I think it was like I was Harry Potter you under in the, the stairs. Do you yes. remember that? <laughs> in the, I was in the cupboard. So I do, get, I do get it and there are times when it has to happen. But yes. ideally. Yes. Ideally, yes. Equip yourself with the right equipment. In a world of podcasts these days where there are so many podcasts around, uh, you know, not including ours, but thank you for listening to ours, Mm. uh, listeners want good audio. And if you want to be interviewed, if it's part of your plan, your publicity plan to get interviewed uh, by podcasts, make sure that you have a headset and Skype. Because cordless phones offer static. Mm. They're not as good quality as Skype and that's why a lot of podcasters like interviewing you on Skype. And if you're going to be on Skype, make sure you have a headset or at the very least have your little earphones to your iPhone kind of handy so that you can use that in place of a headset. What's your experience, Al, in terms of this? Yeah, I have to agree. I think as a as a working author's tip, it's a great thing to do. Like, I, I it's um, it's not that difficult to get. Um, you know, you don't have to have the world's best, you know, quality headset. You don't have to spend hundreds of dollars no, or anything 40 like that. Bucks. But have something that's that's handy because I think what a lot of authors are possibly not seeing at the moment is um, the rise of podcasts mm. and how you know the growth the growth in this area is massive and. Um, it's one of those things where you're talking to someone who's genuinely interested in speaking to you and who's um, who has a subscriber base. 
mm. of people who are interested in what they are doing. Um, so it's a great way of meeting, you know, one-on-one, meeting other people, so to speak. They've got, you are in their, you're in their head. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't get closer to, to a person than being in their head. Hello to everyone who has us in their heads on a weekly <laughs> basis. I'm very worried for you. Um, but no, I, so it's, it's definitely worth thinking about these sort of opportunities and having a look at and listening to podcasts. Have a listen to the kind of podcasts mm. who might be interested in talking to you about your book. It's not just about, I think what we have to think about as authors is it's not just about newspapers and magazines and radio anymore. There are mm. lots of niche ways of getting your message out there. And as an author, um, it's going to be up to you to make the most of those niches and, and keep keep talking about your book, keep writing about your book, keep getting your message out there long after your two weeks of assigned publicity from your publisher are over. Yep, absolutely. It's really important. Yeah, and those niche sites doesn't mean small. No, it, no, it, no, it, not yeah, at all. It, it means there is a whole concentrated mass of people who are interested in writing or reading or whatever it is so but also at the end of the day even if it was 20 people Mm. let's just let even if it's 20 people if you can talk to 20 people directly without leaving home Mm. that's 20 people today that that know about your book that didn't know about it yesterday and I can say that you know like most times and I know a lot of authors will agree with me when you're doing that publicity trail with your book and you're going to library talks and you're going to book you know to to bookshops and things if you get 20 people to one of those you are doing brilliantly well Mm. So, you know, small, drip, drip, drip. It's really important. Yeah. And the Mm. time it took you to go to the library and the expense Mm. it took you to go to the library and the petrol or whatever would have cost you more than 40 bucks for the headset. Absolutely. And I know people who do interviews, um, you can Skype into book clubs. Mm. You can Skype into classrooms. You can Skype into lots and lots of places and it's really worth doing. So, you know, look into it, have a think about it and get yourself a headset. And, yeah, and if you do, when you do Skype into the book clubs and classrooms and those sorts of things, you will you'll be audible. Mm. <laughs> and, people, and, and people won't – you don't have to shout and people will actually have a pleasant experience as opposed to have a concentrate really hard and think, yeah. what was it she just said? Yeah, because the sound on the external microphone is not that good. Mm. <laughs> All right. So that brings us towards the end of our episode this week. Al, what will you be up to? Well, I'll be removing my cranky pants now that we've done the cranky pants (laughs) episode. Uh, I am writing. um, Today I'm going to be marking assignments for the Australian Writers' Centre for my two courses there that I'm doing on magazine and newspaper feature writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, I've got lots of of things happening. So I'm uh, I'm in a planning phase at the moment as well. I'm sort of making – um, sending out emails about doing school talks later in the year and, you know, all of those sorts of things. I'm, I'm, a, I'm fairly proactive when it comes to these sorts of things and I think it's really important to get in early and yes. just, you know, let people know you're available. Well done. You sound like busy. Uh, I will probably be, well, today anyway, uh, setting up my new project in Scrivener and making sure I have all of the different sections there and the research sections and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that should be fun. So color coding. Yeah, color coding. You're coloring in today. (laughs) That's right. Excellent. Where do we find you on social media, Al? Oh, you'll find me on my website, alisontate.com, and you will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val? Uh, you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook. And uh, I also am at Valerie Koo on Instagram where you will see lots of photos of 
cups of coffee and cats. <laughs> Lovely. That sounds great. And, and other things as well. So, <laughs> But until next time, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.